I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Daniel Siddiqui is America's most traveled man, an author of two best-selling books about his journeys throughout the United States over the last 15 years. His story has been featured in dozens of media outlets, including NPR, ABC, NBC, and USA Today. He's harvested corn in Nebraska, caught lobster in Maine, mined coal in West Virginia, coached football in Alabama, married couples in Las Vegas, and much, much more. His most recent book, Piecing Together America, explores the best local features of every major American city, with an emphasis on local craftsmanship. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Just being here with you right now is a great compliment to my work. (laughs) Well, it is a great compliment, I guess you could say, to the show to have you as a guest. Thank you. Now, as I was researching for our interview today, I noticed that there were a lot of similarities between the two of us. So we both grew up in Northern California. We both graduated from college in 2005. Mm -hmm. We both went to USC Mm -hmm. and we both have a deep love for Bend, Oregon. So (laughs) though there are some dissimilarities, I grew up in Pleasanton, you in Los Altos. Mm -hmm. I went to USC for grad school. You went there for undergrad in addition to the University of Oregon. While I hope to move to Bend one day, well, you're living the dream. And perhaps the most important distinction between us is when I graduated in 2005, I was luckily able to find employment pretty soon after moving to LA. You went on over 40 job interviews and received zero offers. Now, of course, that's not including the -the spur-of-the-moment offer you received on a train ride in Florida to be a regional manager for CVS Pharmacies, of course. (laughs) But it was all that rejection that ultimately led us to having this conversation today because you took all of that rejection. USA Today once referred to you as, quote, the most rejected person in the world and used it as fuel to work 50 week-long jobs in all 50 states in America, a feat that took 18,000 emails, 5,000 phone calls, and no small amount of traveling. But before we get to that fateful moment, Daniel, in 2008 that changed your life forever, I want to briefly go all the way back to your childhood. Your website is called Living the Map, and in your first book, 50 Jobs in 50 States, you mentioned that you were intrigued by maps as a child, often studying them for hours at a time. So what was it about maps that so fascinated you at such a young age? I would have to say I just the curiosity of places that I haven't been before, just even spinning the globe in my room, you know, with your index finger uh, landing on a kind of arbitrary place and saying, hey, you know, that might be a place I could live, even though I landed in the ocean quite a bit with my finger. (laughs) Yeah, there's sometimes there's these things in life where there's this unexplained desire. And you can look at even athletes, professional athletes, like, what is it about Tom Brady that just he wants to come back? And even though he's accomplished so much more than anyone in history, he still wants to come back because he has this unexplained desire to be even greater. Mm. And I feel like that with the maps. I feel like, what is it about the the U.S. map in particular that I just could not keep my eyes off of? Even though I've been to every place now in America, I still look at it a little differently because now it really has come to life. And I don't look at it as lines of highways and borders between states. I look at it as you know, people's livelihoods, cultures that have been created, beautiful landscapes and and trains. That's why I call it living the map because I, as a little kid, was just curious about people, whether it's like how many people live in places, what kind of jobs they do, what kind of religions they practice. All that just started because I have a pretty diverse family myself. My mom was born and raised in New Jersey, and she is, uh, I think, sixth or eighth generation American coming from, you know, Tennessee and Ohio area. And then I have my dad who is born and raised in Afghanistan. And I think that's where the curious bug started to evolve. And, you know, my dad growing up as a Muslim, my my mom being Christian, and then we would go to church when I was a kid and then transitioned into going to a mosque. And I just saw the differences of culture and practices and the people and where they're coming from. And so I would say that's kind of how the curiosity just kind of propelled into what I've been doing now. Yeah, you must have grown up hearing very different and diverse stories of both your mother and father's familial histories. If your mother's a seventh or eighth generation American Mm -hmm. going so far back in our history and Mm -hmm. your father was born and raised in Afghanistan, I imagine just hearing those two familial stories side by side, it sounds like it really piqued your interest. 
Yeah, I mean, you go to Afghan weddings and, you know, people would go to their weddings that didn't even know who's getting married. It was just that kind of community. Mm. Um, And the same people would go to a funeral without even knowing personally who had passed away. And so that was kind of like that cultural experience I experienced from my dad's side. And then my mom's side, we would have to go back east to see my relatives. And one of my uncles, he was a big hunter. And so it was my first time like ever you know, being around the woods and using a a gun to go hunting on his, I think he had a 400 acre property. What a difference then you can experience from Connecticut where he was to California where, you know, people don't have that kind of land, (laughs) at least in the Bay Area. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it's just these little travel experiences just kind of piqued my interest more about, I would say as I got older, it was more about America. When I was a kid, it was more global and I was collecting cards, like trading cards of different countries. And you you see all these different stats on the back and I memorized all of them. And I was also very interested in that show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Oh, yeah. I wasn't the only one that was interested in geography when I saw that show. But I think I took it to a whole nother level in my adulthood. (laughs) Yeah. And what you said earlier about how when you really get to know a place, how it ceases to just be a location on a map and becomes kind of full of life in your mind. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing is true of anyone who's lived in a city for an extended period of time or a town. I remember when I first moved to Los Angeles in 2005, I don't really feel like I had a grasp of the city for the first several years, you know, like mm-hmm. I imagine you've experienced this. It's like when you move to a big city, especially it's like the first year, the map in your mind almost is like little bits and pieces of the map are clear, but then a lot of it's still fog. You're like, okay, I know this intersection and I know this mm-hmm. taco shop over here, but I actually don't know how the two of them connect in the, in the larger picture of the city. Mm-hmm. And I imagine the same thing is true of a nation considering how much of our country you've seen. Yeah, it's incredibly diverse. I think that actually transitions us pretty well and we can flash forward from the 80s, <laughs> but I, we still have to kind of stay somewhat in the past here. I want to go back 17 years actually to that period when you did your 40 plus job interviews with zero offers mm-hmm. and when you came up with your 50 jobs in 50 states in 50 weeks idea. You said in a 2010 TEDx talk, quote, I started two years ago, standing in line in a Macy's with a suit in hand, and I had just failed another job interview. I was going to return the suit regardless. I couldn't afford it. I was living in a rental car with no money, no job prospects, end quote. I want you to take the listeners back to that moment. Where were you emotionally and mentally at that time? And what inspired you in the moment to write that first of what would become 18,000 emails trying to nail down 50 jobs in 50 states? That moment was uh, this vicious cycle of failure, and I just felt like a dark cloud of rejection was following me. And that was the moment that was three years after I graduated from college, and it was nothing but struggle. And I had already lived in Chicago. I had already lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, and a very short stint in Atlanta, And I was just trying to figure out how to make this concept that I had in mind to do 50 jobs in 50 states work. But when I flew back to Los Angeles in that moment, you said I bought a suit from Macy's with no intentions of keeping it, whether or not I got the job. I was actually just trying to start over and look for that job with a with my background of economics and and business and, you know, just try to earn a living until I can make this idea become a reality. And on my way to that interview, that's when I got a call from the employer saying, oh, by the way, we're no longer interested in uh, interviewing you. No reason explained. And I had driven nearly six hours from the Bay Area to get there. And I slept in my rental car for a couple of nights. And then after that rejection, I slept in my car continuously for another couple of weeks uh, since I had that car for the, a month. And I, that's when I was just like completely frustrated about well, why is this happening to me? Why am I getting rejected by the world around me? And I was kind of just driving aimlessly on the very busy uh, interstates of Los Angeles and got kind of run off the side of the road by a semi truck and was forced into an exit and then I just pulled over and I just completely broke down like just saying why I I, I totally lost my mind 
you know, and I called my parents and I said what had just happened through my time in Los Angeles. And my mom said, yeah, just come home and get your mind straight. And then my dad was kind of yelling at me pretty harshly. You never listen to us. You know, you always try to find your own way. And uh, when I got back home, they had me be evaluated by a psychiatric doctor. And they were like putting these things on my head to read my brain patterns. And then they were suggesting that I needed some sort of treatment because they thought maybe I was self-sabotaging myself. There was something that I was thinking wrong about myself and the world. And obviously I didn't go through with it, but it got to that point where, ah, man, my self-esteem had gone beyond down the tubes and my hope and positive outlook is completely shattered. But then this concept to do 50 jobs in 50 states had been in my mind just for about a couple of weeks at that point. And I said, well, you know, at this point, I absolutely have nothing to lose. So if I'm going to do this, let's just make some cold calls to Nebraska, to Wyoming, to New Mexico and ask for positions and just be homeless on the road because I was already technically homeless in a rental car. So I was like, let's be homeless with a purpose and just see where that could lead me. Wow. In some ways, that makes sense when you talk about it in that way. But it also seems like after going through so much rejection, 40 job interviews, zero offers, to set yourself up for 18,000 emails, 6,000 calls. I mean, I'd love for you to speak a little bit about this because you experienced just volume after volume of rejection when you were trying to find these 50 jobs in 50 states. So I guess there's part of me that's asking, Daniel, after what you had just gone through and the kind of state of mind that you were in, where your parents were, as you were saying, like literally concerned about your mental state, mm -hmm. what motivated you to put yourself up for just another extremely brutal round of more rejections in pursuing this project? Yeah, I was definitely risking more failure by this concept because in the recession, when this was taking place, it was bound to happen. It was bound to fail. It was uh Definitely rejection was going to be a part of the process. And I just had the mentality, and it might come from the curiosity that was so strong. I love what my uncle said. If He said, if the why is strong enough, the how becomes easy. Uh, and so, yeah, although it wasn't never easy, the why was very strong about why I wanted to do this. And my mindset being a collegiate athlete was, you know, very being very goal oriented and mm. having a lot of endurance especially track and field, you know, you, you have to be very internally driven and you're there for a purpose. And I just created a purpose from doing 50 jobs in 50 states. And I just had the mindset of knowing that rejection was going to be a part of the equation. Yeah. And I already experienced so much. How much worse can it be? I've already learned how to tolerate it. And like I said, there was no turning back yeah. a place to turn back to so it was kind of all or nothing so if it didn't work i kept thinking well if i landed five jobs in five states and i was like this is becoming too hard where am i really turning back to yeah <laughs> nowhere that's true that's why i continue to keep going until i finished and when i finished i just felt like okay well what's the next step in life you know now that i accomplished this and live the map. Yeah. But to go into the whole rejection of the jobs previously, man, it really took a lot. You know, you're going there already thinking you're going to get rejected because of the previous experiences. So you're going in there already. Although I was trying to be as positive as I could, in the back of my mind I was thinking like, man, am I wasting my time again? Did I waste all this money to get here? I remember going to Stanford University for the third time I was living in Chicago. I flew there three times on my own money to be a, an accountant for uh, the tennis team. That would have been a great job. Unfortunately, I didn't get it. And I was a runner up. That's the thing. I was a runner up many times. Mm. So it was not like I was living in a unrealistic world where I wasn't qualified. It's just, I never got my break in these positions. And so I look back on it now thinking, yeah, all this was bringing me on a path of this discovery of 50 jobs, 50 states, and, you know, becoming an author. And I wasn't even planning to be an author, but the world truly opened up 
when I was able to accomplish 50 jobs in 50 states. Yeah, I think there are two really, really important takeaways from what you just shared with us. I think the first one is that the things that can happen in our lives that can often leave us feeling really low, you know, like really, really low, which it sounds like that was exactly where you were in 2008, you know, living back with your parents, spending 16 hours a day in your childhood bedroom making cold calls Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) with your father angry at you. I have to imagine that's a pretty low place to be, but it can lead us to wonderful places that we never thought we would go, either new careers, new locations, new opportunities. And it certainly happened to me. And I, I imagine many of our listeners can, if they reflected on it, can think of maybe not as dramatic or perhaps even more dramatic scenarios in their lives where things felt really bleak. You know, it's kind of cheesy, but like sometimes it will open another door. The other thing to kind of tie this into your history as an athlete in track and field, there is such a profound connection, I think, between setting a goal and having a destination to walk or run towards, right? Because those two things are very alike. If you know, okay, I have to run 26 miles in this direction. And once I reach this location, the race will be finished. Mm -hmm. Having that destination in mind, rather than just running or walking aimlessly with no purpose, those are two entirely different things. And similarly, if you have a goal in mind, whether it's a fantastical one or one that's more achievable, whatever it may be, having the goal in front of you as something to walk towards can give you so much more purpose than if you were just trying for something kind of aimlessly. Do I have that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I live my life with goals. I mean, my recent goal now was to find a publisher for a new travel series. And now I signed on to do 10 books. And it's just incredible how just being driven with the goal will carry you to the right direction, really. And setting goals, it's easier said than done, right? So what helped me accomplish this 50 jobs in 50 states goal was you know, the endurance that I had and what gave me the endurance was having the purpose in mind. And and my meaning of doing this changed, or I should say evolved from state to state. It went from like, oh yeah, I have this reason of, you know, living the map and doing 50 jobs in 50 states for my own curiosity. But then as I met people who are struggling and I learned greatly every day something new, that became even my new purpose. So I would say endurance was one, being persistent was another, you know, suffering through all those rejections, as you had mentioned. The risk taking, I defined that by your willingness to make a discovery. And then I would have to say just being adaptable helped me accomplish this goal, you know, willing to just embrace any situation and kind of humble yourself. Everywhere I went, I had to humble myself because I needed help along the way. And then networking. Mm. I had a very small network coming out of college. And when I did this and I was making, you know, thousands of calls, as you can imagine, I I started to build a support system. Yeah. And then, of course, meeting people in person and staying in their homes and meeting hundreds of people at a work site. I started getting a lot of confidence and support from strangers. That is definitely a through line. I think through all of your books that I noticed is just not to take away from the rough patches you had (laughs) or the rude people you encountered. But I think for every one rude or mean or discouraging person, there were 10 or 20 people who embraced you and treated you with warmth and kindness. But to get us back to the start of your 50 state journey, you started that journey with only 10 jobs in 10 states set up. And as you were about to embark on that journey, you asked your local newspaper if they'd like to write about your story. Mm -hmm. They did. And that story soon went viral. So I've got two questions for you. The first one's really just for my curiosity as a fellow son of the Bay Area. What was the local paper you approached? Palo Alto Daily News, which no longer exists. Okay. Okay. Really small. Yeah. That's like the equivalent of the Pleasanton Weekly, which is hand delivered to people's doorsteps. And that one is still somehow in business. Second, once the story gained traction, you were approached by the producer of the popular show Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe, who asked if you wanted to turn your 50 state adventure into a reality show. In the book, you wrote, quote, being the host of a television show about working across America was my dream and I was thrilled, end quote. But you ultimately ended up rejecting the offer. So what changed your mind in that moment? Well, it was my dream because that's kind of even why I went to USC, because they had the best film school in the world. I've always appreciated sitcoms and even wanting to pursue screenwriting. 
So when I say it's my dream, it's because the entertainment industry has always been on my mind. I don't know in what regard, but I turned it down because I was in a different place in my life. And it was my idea that I had. And when I got a chance to talk to the producer, he said, yeah, we'll have a camera crew following you around and then we'll create enough content to have a show. And I just thought about how would that look like? Mm. And I talked to my cousin at the time. I talked to my brother and just we never really even talked about how much money I would be making or if it would actually come to fruition and be on a network. But I thought it was not the intentions of why I wanted to go on this journey. I didn't want to be on the journey because I'm a host of a TV show. I wanted to actually authentically experience America. There was a saying I'm trying to remember from film school, but it basically says that the moment you put a camera on someone, reality ceases to exist. Yeah, no, it's true. The moment someone knows they're being filmed, even if they're trying to act as natural as possible, you have contaminated the space because it's 100% different. And I imagine you even encountered elements of that, even though you weren't with a camera crew as an outsider, you know? I'm guilty of that myself. I mean, every time a news crew came out, like I put on a show, (laughs) I was kind of directing like what things they should experience or film and how to do it. And then even when I was a weatherman for the morning show in Cleveland, you know, all my coworkers, you could see their personality just totally perked up as soon as that light went on. Oh, yeah. But yeah, no, every time a camera is on me or if I'm doing a TV interview, of course you want to have this energy and enthusiasm and try to show the best of what you're experiencing. Let's dig into those jobs because it's so fascinating. Some of the jobs you worked during your 50-week marathon included South Dakota rodeo announcer, Nebraska corn harvester, and Wisconsin cheesemaker. And that one, you said, was, quote, probably the most labor-intensive job I did, more than oil rigging, end quote. So I have to ask, what the hell made cheesemaking so hard? And after you answer that, what were some of the most surprising jobs you worked for good or for bad? Yeah, so the cheesemaking was very difficult because we had to go to the uh, dairy farm to get the milk first, very early, probably four in the morning, and then uh, put it in a huge vat and then do the entire process, coagulation, dyeing. I forgot all the different steps, but it took hours and hours, and it was all done by hand. There was like a turner with the machine just so it can help break up the hard curds. But yeah, we had to end up basically dipping buckets in, you know, 40 pounds in weight and then pressing them. And then you had to clean and sanitize every single surface area that milk would touch and do it all over again. So it was a good 10 to 12 hour process. And if you messed up on any part of it, you had to start over and that could be very costly. But it was extremely exhausting because you don't have time for breaks. And there was a team of three of us and it was just constant movement. And I say backbreaking work literally because it was just like you had to bend over the vat, shovel out the cheese and then get it pressed. And then we were doing brick cheese. So we also had to place bricks to compress them in a different style. Now, going back to the other jobs, I would have to say, you know, going in with no experience they were all shocking to me, whether it's the Border Patrol agent in Arizona to being a stilt walker at Universal Studios in Florida to coal mining in West Virginia. They were all just eye-opening to see the livelihoods that really shape these communities. One of the things that really stood out to me about that book, along with your other books, really, it's a through line. I mean, all the way through Piecing Together America, there's a real emphasis on hands-on work and craftsmanship. It's a through line through all of your books, in my view. Again, for me, as someone who works in the digital space, who's worked in filmmaking and media, I think for me, me and my peers can feel really disconnected, I think, from the physical world because so many of the things we're dealing with are digital. You know, like, what'd you do today? I typed on a computer and stared at a screen for eight hours and I moved some digital files around on Dropbox and an email. And even though you are getting things done, it can really feel like you're not. And I would imagine after graduation, you weren't working in the exact same space, but you were working in a space or working or trying to apply to jobs and spaces that were also very digitized. What about the first experience traveling around the US and your experiences since then, seeing so many American jobs that are really hands-on, as of course, all jobs throughout history have been until very recently. 
what did you learn as someone who I imagine, at least professionally and from the college perspective, was training for an entirely different skill set in a world that would have been much more hands-off? I felt like the hands-on work, people built a sense of pride behind it because they actually seeing what they're making. Yes. And then the sense of accomplishment when you see like a home complete, mm. you kind of look at that and say, wow, I created that with my own hands. Versus if you're working as a data analysis uh, for a company, you're just working with numbers on a computer and you're not really seeing like the whole picture mm. of what you've created. I, I think a lot of these hands-on jobs, sure, each one has a specific station. But when I was making medical equipment in Minnesota, there's all these different stations that you would master. But then the end product is right there for everyone to see. Mm. And I think people really appreciated that. Yeah, I was able to give somebody a, a hip replacement from what I made or a catheter in someone's heart. That's the difference. And that's kind of why I did my recent project called Piecing Together America, whether it's making the Louisville slugger, the bat or neon sign in Las Vegas. I was able to do all these things from the beginning or from scratch to completion. The people who I worked alongside with, you could see their eyes light up with so much passion in their art or creation. <laughs> I'm wary of being too armchair psychologist here in, in diagnosing the problems of society. But mm -hmm. I do wonder, speaking as someone in a space that is very digital, if some of the, and I'm walking, <laughs> I'm trying, trying to tread lightly here, but I'm just, I'm speaking anecdotally. But I do wonder if a lot of the anxiety and depression that I see among my peers, even I've experienced some of it myself, is a disconnection from the physical, which again is is so radically new in terms of human existence. Mm -hmm. And I think something you said earlier, Daniel, is also a very key part of it, which is oftentimes, in addition to something being digitized, you don't have anything physical to kind of show for your work, mm -hmm. especially when you work for a larger company or you're just kind of a cog in a machine, so to speak, you can feel so disconnected from whatever the wider project is that you don't really feel a sense of accomplishment once that project is done. And I know that whether it be the times I've volunteered in the past with, you know, helping build a house, you know, <laughs> I was probably very little help, but it still felt good to work for a day. Or even pressing apple cider from raw apples at a local apple vineyard at like 80 miles from here in LA. And I want to be careful here. I'm not to say that a lot of these jobs that you worked and that Americans work aren't sometimes brutal and the hours are long. I think there's room for improvement there. But something at the core of just physically doing something, yeah. I just wonder if there's something deep within us that gets a sense of satisfaction that you just can't replicate in the digital space. Well, that's why I appreciate President Theodore Roosevelt. I think he had a mental breakdown when his wife or child passed away. And then he kind of learned that he was able to restore himself by going out into the wilderness. And that's why he created the uh, national parks. And so, and I think he even went out to Wyoming or Montana to be a cowboy for a very short stint to be able to restore his spirit. Yeah, nature is extremely important. All this hands-on work, it's, I would say, mostly outdoors, whether it's oil rigging or logging. Not all of them, of course, like the cheese making is not outdoors. But I think also the depression and anxiety that people are facing now is because they find themselves in isolation more than they ever had before. Yes. You're connected with your phone. You're connected with your computer. You think you can live your life that way, but uh, losing that sense of human interaction. That's why we saw a lot of these mental illnesses spike yes. during COVID. I mean, right now, if you call a psychiatrist, good luck even getting an appointment. You know, you have to be on a waiting list and three months down the road, you're lucky to get one. So, yeah, I would say the great thing about hands-on work is usually you're with a team of people and you're out there making things and being out in the natural environment. Yes, I would have to say, just from my experience working with all different demographics, the people were the happiest were the Amish people, you know, making their furniture and, you know, showing their art and making something that's useful for an everyday American mm. versus somebody who is, let's see, I compare it to maybe I was doing some simulations on a computer in an office by myself for a Chevron with a petroleum engineering department. Although I did understand what I was doing, I still didn't connect with it as if I was out there doing it. So, yeah, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to really pinpoint. But yeah, from my perspective, being around people is important for your mental health. Yes. The topic of social isolation and atomization has been a recurring theme on this podcast with several of our guests. And I want to touch on 50 jobs in 50 states for just a while longer. But that sense of isolation that you talk about in some of the communities in your book, Going the Extra Mile, whether it was communities in Appalachia or on the Native American reservation that you experienced. I mean, a person either isolated from their family, like the stories you shared in Appalachia, or a community that might feel isolated from its heritage or from the rest of America, like in the Native reservation, they can have lifelong effects. uh, And it seems like it can have a compounding effect generation to generation. But each one of your books is so chock full of information, Daniel, that I want to linger a little bit longer on your first one. So as your journey across the U.S. progressed and you checked more jobs off your list, it wasn't uncommon for you to use the skills you'd acquired in, say, one profession in an entirely different scenario. Like when you used your welding knowledge that you acquired while apprenticing as a boilermaker in Missouri to solder some cables while working as a music studio technician in Tennessee. So are there skills and knowledge that you still find yourself using today that you learned during that 50-week period? In terms of the technical, I don't have a technical job right now, but in terms of the soft skills, yeah, of course, I was able to develop those. Communication is one of them being internally driven and confident is another and just really disciplined with, you know, the way I approach things. I would have to say that has definitely developed, but yeah, technical skills, it's kind of cool because I can say, yeah, I've used the chainsaw to cut down a 250 foot tree in Oregon, or I have, you know, welded, as you mentioned, now I learn how to pour latte art or roll a cigar or weave a basket, or sew a quilt. That's from your most recent book. Wood carving, yeah. All these things, yeah, making cheese. I know the process. I understand the process. So, yeah. no, I don't do these things in my everyday life, but it's nice to be able to have that in my holster, I should say. Yeah, but, you know, in my recent book, I learned how to tie knots in eight different methods. You got the round turn, you got the figure eight, you got the reef knot, the sheet bend, the bowline, the clove hitch, the cleat hitch, like all these things I did not know before this. But yeah, that's why I enjoy what I do is because I learn something new technically every day and I'm developing my own soft skills along the way. So you're telling me you're not making latte art every morning for breakfast? No, no. But uh, (laughs) now I can appreciate how people try to perfect that. Yeah, it takes a long time to learn. I'm sure you've heard like the phrase jack of all trades, master of none. And I feel like it's often used as like a kind of dig at someone who has a lot of surface knowledge about a wide array of subjects, but no deep knowledge about any one thing. Mm -hmm. But if anything, in my view, your experiences over the last 15 years, either from the 50 Jobs Challenge or your exploration of American craftsmanship for your newest book, which we've talked about a bit, Piecing Together America. I think that kind of proves that a jack of all trades can be a very helpful jack indeed. So what are your thoughts, you know, having lived this, about acquiring a lot of basic knowledge about many things versus very deep knowledge about a few things? I agree with you. The jack of all trades kind of gets a negative connotation. You are just good at the surface thing. I mean, I was only able to do a lot of these jobs for a week or this hands-on craftsmanship for a couple hours. So that's true. But my deep knowledge is understanding people because I was able to get an entire town in Mississippi motivated to train for a 5K race. So I was able to pull some heartstrings and getting a community behind a purpose to overcome obesity. I was able to accomplish that on an Indian reservation with youth to help them with learning about different jobs and career development. So I would say my deep-rooted knowledge is of people and kind of what they go through. Yeah. Because I did put myself in their shoes authentically or organically. You could say I'm almost like a, could be an expert anthropologist. Mm. Well, and I feel like you have to have developed so much empathy over your travels over the last 15 years. I mean, meeting and experiencing life with such a vast and diverse array of people in so many different places around the United States. It's very hard to think of people as the other when you've met so many of them, you know? Yeah, my second book called Going the Extra Mile was all about curiosity leading to compassion. So I was curious, but then 
that curiosity brought me to communities and ultimately said, wow, look at what these people face on a day-to-day basis. Some of them are living in very dark times and places, and it gave me the compassion or empathy to understand what they go through. Yeah. I wouldn't have known that unless I was actually there physically. It's not something that you could experience through a documentary, not the way you would if you were there in person meeting people. No. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, there is a big difference between sitting on one's couch and watching a documentary and actually having to look at the folks face to face and talk with them as human beings. Before we get to going the extra mile, and it's such a different book from 50 Jobs in 50 States, I think the last question to round out the first book I've said this before at some point on this podcast, but it remains true. If there was a scenario, some fictional scenario, where if you had two people and you told them that you would give $10 million to whoever could travel around the world the fastest and be back at that spot first, and only one of those two people had ever heard of planes, the other person could travel and hustle as hard as possible by train, by car, by ship, but they would never, ever win. Obviously, that can sound very silly because who hasn't heard of planes? But I think it's how so many of us process our day-to-day lives when it comes to career options. So in a recent conversation I had with Zach Krauman, who was Andrew Yang's presidential campaign manager in 2020, Mm -hmm. he talked about his nonprofit Suit Up, which hosts Fortune 500-backed business competitions at underserved schools so that children have the opportunity to consider career paths they may have never thought of before because no one told them that those jobs were possible or available or the path to those jobs would oftentimes seem very opaque. Now, the jobs suit up exposes these children to are usually corporate in nature, but I think that there's something that's very analogous with that nonprofit and your experience with 50 Jobs in 50 States. And that I think I learned this from the book and it really opened my eyes is that there are so many blue collar and even white collar jobs that are available to Americans that we've either never heard of or considered at all because we all exist in our own little bubbles, no matter where we live. So, as a fellow son of the Bay Area, What about your perspective about American working people and about career opportunities in America in general has changed and how did it change? Yeah, so how is easy because, you know, once I left California and went to a farm in Nebraska, I was like, (laughs) you know, being in a feedlot, Kansas, going to a slaughterhouse, seeing oil fields for the first time in Oklahoma or coal mines in West Virginia and surface mines of Wyoming environment, obviously, a lot of these jobs that I mentioned is what creates these industries. Silicon Valley, where we're from, or the Bay Area, attracts a lot of entrepreneurs, attracts the tech industry. So of course, that's what people are going to tend to go into these types of industries. And, you know, I went to Homestead High School, where Steve Jobs and um, Wozniak went. So it was kind of like ingrained in the culture and the environment. And that was the opportunities that you would see before your eyes. And it's very different than a high schooler being in Kansas who is growing up near the meat packing industry. So yeah, of course, the uh, environment that you come from is going to shape your options. So yeah, that's why we're seeing so much a variety of culture in America, because our landscapes are different. You know, you go to coast of Maine where people are lobstering and people eat lobster. You're not going to have that in South Dakota. Yeah. No offense to South Dakota, but I might not have the lobster. <laughs> yeah. They have rock, they have a uh, mountain. Rocky Mountain oysters. <laughs> Rocky Mountain oysters. Yeah. Which I hadn't heard of until I went there and tried. Uh, note to listeners, they are not from the sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're from the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. I was about to say, obviously, not everyone would be able to travel around the U.S. as you did. But actually, what you did, or some version of it, is actually pretty achievable, right? Yeah, n- nobody should use a lack of money as an excuse not to do something. So, I mean, you hear, you know, all these immigrants come in. Their stories are all, oh, I only had $500 in my bank and now I have a $50 million home. You know, it's just a matter of like your intelligence and your ability to assess right moves, uh, right connections, the gumption, as you mentioned. You got to have that drive. Yeah. Me personally, I, I don't chase money. That has never been my motive. That's why I turned down a television show. It's always been about what makes me happy and living a fulfilled life. And if that means living other people's lives (laughs) for a short time, then 
that makes me happy because I thank them, you know, genuinely thank people. Like, thank you for opening your doors for me to understand your ways of thinking and your everyday teaching me something new. That's kind of how I thrive. Yeah. But if, you know, somebody's offering me a million dollars a year to do a job I don't want to do, I'm going to be unhappy. You know, it's interesting. This is a super dated reference. I imagine you'll get it, but you're almost the closest to a real life version of like quantum leap. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you're just leaping from life to life every week. Yeah. It's crazy. Like I've lived so many different lives. It's unnatural what I'm doing. I might be going crazy myself. I just (laughs) can't believe how many varied experiences I've had in my 40 years. Well, really my last 15. Mm. I can't believe how much I've experienced and how many miles I've driven and how many homes and bedrooms I've stayed in. Yeah. I don't know if your viewers or listeners could really understand how it is to shoot. You know, I'm one day I'm shooting archery with a Cherokee Indian in the forest of Oklahoma. Yeah, there is actually forest in Oklahoma. (laughs) And then the next day I'm with Scandinavians who just flew from Sweden and participating in like a tug of war with our teeth with a rope <laughs> in front of an audience in Minot, North Dakota. So it's just like so varied of an experience. But that's why America is so amazing is because you can do this all in the same country. Yeah, that was one of the biggest takeaways. I also wonder how many dentists are in that audience watching that tug of war contest, just looking for clients. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But, you know, speaking of all the miles you've traveled, let's go the extra one and talk about your next book, Going the Extra Mile, which is a starkly different book from 50 Jobs in 50 States, because it shares what it was like to spend one month in each of five locations. Uh, And you've mentioned a couple of them so far, but I'll kind of reiterate them here for our listeners. There was Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota the poorest location in the United States with an 80% unemployment rate, where you volunteered with the Workforce Investment Act program. Kern County, California, with one of the highest populations of undocumented workers in America, where you worked as a day laborer. The impoverished Appalachian Hills of East Kentucky, where you worked with Christian missionaries helping the sick and destitute. Pickens, Mississippi, a town of about a thousand people with one of the highest obesity rates in the nation to lead the community in their first ever 5K run and volunteering with the Southside Help Center to help at-risk kids in Chicago. So your reasons behind 50 jobs in 50 states seem fairly straightforward, especially when you kind of lay them out here for the listeners. But what inspired you to examine some of the hardest hit communities in America for this book? The second book, Going the Extra Mile, was inspired by areas that I missed out on that I was curious about, and I just didn't have time. For instance, I was driving through South Dakota after being a rodeo announcer And I saw this sign that said 50 miles to Indian Reservation. I thought, wow, as a Californian and grow up in the Bay Area, you don't see those signs very often. (laughs) No, yeah. So I was like, man, should I drive 50 miles? It was like 100 degrees in the summer. And I was thinking, well, should I go and see people living in teepees? You know, I had no idea what to expect. And I ended up just pulling over and just resting in the back of my car because it was so hot, you know, blazing sun. And I just said, uh, maybe I'll find a time, you know, in the future, another time in the future to, to explore Indian Reservation. And then this kind of same things happened when I was in Kentucky and West Virginia. I was like, oh, man, it would be so cool to explore the backwoods. Or I heard so much about the Delta region of Mississippi and Arkansas. So it's that curiosity of these places that I didn't get a chance to hit. And I I made a whole new journey to go back to five different communities. One of the things that, as I kind of mentioned, that you go in deep detail in the book is what is so strikingly different about going the extra mile versus 50 jobs in 50 states is a lot of the focus in going the extra mile is on communities that are experiencing deep tragedy. To pull some of the stats from the book, 85% of families on Pine Ridge Reservation are struggling with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Day laborers prune raspberry bushes in 116 degree heat for years or even decades. Appalachian residents riddled with cancer from pollutants in the drinking water who, per your book, use food stamps to buy Mountain Dew that they then sell at pawn shops for drug money. Mm -hmm. And nearly 100% of the population of Pickens, Mississippi is diabetic. And the nearest grocery store with fresh produce is 40 miles away. So I guess I want to dig a little deeper with you, Daniel, because I imagine even more than 
just the places you missed, the tragedy and trauma you document in this book can sometimes be rather overwhelming. And that's just to read it. I can't imagine experiencing it. So what were some of your biggest takeaways from that experience? Yeah, I was like, can I instill hope in these communities or it's just going to be a vicious cycle? Can one man do enough or do these people want help from outsiders? And I would have to say it depended on from community to community, like Indian Reservation. They don't want help from outsiders at all. Appalachia, they don't want outsiders at all. Because like, for instance, in Appalachia, it's such a beautiful area. You could create an amazing tourism industry. They actually don't want that. Yeah, I remember one of the residents telling that to you. Yeah, they're so used to their way of life and they don't really understand that it's problematic. Like, for instance, in the Appalachia area, you would see like these crosses on the side of the road for marking, you know, someone passed away, most likely from a alcohol or drug accident. And it was just so common. Like you would even see it on Indian reservations, common, common, common. But if you go elsewhere in other communities who, who maybe value life a little bit more, and I don't want to just say that as a blanket statement, but it just seemed like if you're used to like an 18 year old dying in your community, it just becomes common or acceptable. Mm. But if, if that's in other communities, it's like an absolutely tragic thing that you do anything to prevent. Yeah. So it just seems like these uh, horrific accidents became more common. Mm. But yeah, Mississippi, for instance, the 100% diabetic town that I trained, I was one man trying to make a difference. And I felt like I did for the 150 people that competed in this effort. So yes, there is a chance that one person can make a difference. But you got to have things in place where it continues and maintains. Mm. Otherwise, it just goes back to the habit of the environment and the people. Yeah. So that's what I've learned. It's just like these are vicious cycles of problems. And that's why they have become epidemics. It really does take someone to leave to really know, oh, yeah, this is a problem. Like South Chicago, you should not be hearing bullets going you should not be paranoid about stray bullets mm. going into your bedroom. You should not be paranoid about going to a, a store and walking down the sidewalk and being fearful of losing your life. If you take that person from South Chicago and bring them to Yellowstone, Wyoming, that's not going to happen. So yeah, it's just like the environment that they're in, it's part of their life and it doesn't need to be that way. I think that's a very good point. And I think that we can see this phenomenon both in local communities and even on a nationwide scale. Something becomes normalized and then the cycle is able to self-sustain so that members of that community, be they local or national, don't really second guess why things are the way they are. Like to take a national example for our listeners, it's like violence is is very easy to see on American cable television and in movies and, and TV and has been very normalized for a long period of time, but nudity is more taboo. Whereas in Europe, it's the exact opposite, right? Like nudity is fairly run of the mill, but censoring violent material, even if it's fictionalized, is much more common in places like Germany and elsewhere. And so what we experience is normal, whether it's the normalization of, as you were saying, drunk driving victims in, in Appalachia mm -hmm. or alcoholism on the reservation you visited. I mean, obviously those can be the products of long and storied histories of trauma or oppression, et cetera. But um, getting out of those cycles or even recognizing them as abnormal can be very difficult. Yeah. And a lot of people say the only way they can see that is by having them leave. Perspective. Yeah. Yeah. How is it practical for someone to leave? I came from the Bay Area where you see opportunities all around you, although I got rejected by all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but you see people going to work. You see success. A lot of these communities I went to, you just see you know, violence, you see poverty, you see alcohol, drug abuse. So is it practical for them to have an outlook of saying, yeah, if I, how do I get myself out of it? Yeah. It just depends on the individual. I mean, there are a lot of success stories. Steve Harvey, he's from South Chicago. Look at him now, you know, and it's just a matter of who they surround themselves with, parenting styles, teachers, friends that they surround themselves with. Yes. All that matters. It's a phenomenon that can be replicated or stopped at the very smallest level to the largest level, right? Like I imagine everyone listening here has either been in a family or witnessed a family, let's say of a friend or a loved one 
the family relationship is just simply toxic or the mother and father or the parents or the parent is, you know, kind of bathing their child, whether consciously or not in like negativity or a bleak outlook. And then that can bleed into how that child views the world. Right. And the same thing can happen within a, a group, a community, a state, a nation, kind of a virus, a social virus that can infect people. And it is very hard to escape. But to mildly shift gears here, one of the frustrating things for me about a lot of national news stories over the last few years is they tend to lean, in my opinion, too heavily on stereotypes that put like huge diverse groups of people into overly broad categories, either by race or ethnicity. And one of the things that really stuck out to me about your experiences in going the extra mile was how in its own way, the book was a refutation of those overly broad narratives. I'll give one example for our listeners here. By your own account, you were often deeply uncomfortable or even terrified during your stay in predominantly white Appalachia, at one point witnessing an attempted public murder with an axe in the middle of the road, while you felt quite welcome in Pickens, Mississippi, a town that's, I believe, 99.7% black. The point I'm making may sound obvious to some, but I do feel that there is a tendency in media to oversimplify the thousands of unique communities that exist across America and just talk about people in very blatant, well, he's they're this ethnicity or they're this race or they're this gender or whatever. But things are so much more complex than that, which is so evident in your books. What was your experience like spending five months in five very culturally distinct communities? And, and what did you learn about Americans as a whole and, and how often, in my opinion, those stories about us are often so very wrong? Yeah, I think we stereotype because that's just kind of a, a defense mechanism. You want to be able to assess somebody by the way they look or act or where they're from without even knowing them. That's what we tend to do. I think it's just a defense mechanism. Now, in terms of all these diverse places I went, yeah, it just depends from individual to individual. If somebody wanted to accept me as an outsider, great. Oftentimes not. And, you know, I had kids on the Indian reservation totally ignore me because I'm not native. And then I found people in the community that said, oh, yeah, let's take you to a, you know, a Sundance event. Doesn't matter about the demographic of people. It just matters about the person individually. And you can experience that no matter where you go. People who are open and some people are closed, some people who are protective, some people who are just accepting and willingness to take in a stranger, show them their lives. So I got that in all communities. It just didn't matter which one. Yeah. Again, like speaking nationally, I think we often mistake demographics with communities, even though those things can sometimes overlap. It's like your experience in, you know, let's say the south side of Chicago versus Pickens, Mississippi were starkly different in the same way that I imagine your experience in Appalachia it was very different from other experiences you've had in towns that are similar demographically, but the communities are so intensely different. And I think that that's something that a lot of people can lose sight of that is very clear in your books. I want to just to stay on going the extra mile for one moment before we get to Piecing Together America, your latest book, which was released, I believe, this May. I want to talk about the idea of tourism versus like living somewhere. Yeah. I want to get your thoughts on that because I know you've lived several places over the last two decades. And also you've been to places for very short periods of time. I can imagine, I didn't find any in my research, but perhaps you encountered it along the way. I can imagine that during your 50 jobs tour that you may have received some criticism about being a kind of tourist. Because I think there is some truth to the idea that no one can truly know what it's like to live somewhere or work a specific job in just a week. And I imagine you would you would agree with that. Because, yeah. you know, I've had friends who, let's say, I'm not going to name any names, but I've had friends who've like visited Italy and they see the Colosseum and then they go on to say they've experienced Rome. You know, they haven't. I mean, like I said earlier, I've lived in LA for 17 years now and I didn't feel like I truly had a grasp of the city until maybe three or four years in. So with going the extra mile and touching on such sensitive and often deeply tragic subject matter, when you were heading into these locations, did you ever have any concerns that you might be perceived as a kind of tourist? And did you ever worry that a month might not be long enough to truly understand a place? Well, I was doing things that made sense to me. Like it was practical for me to keep in mind. I did that voluntarily. Of course. That I could try to engage with the community as best I could for a month with a goal in mind. 
whether it's reaching 150 uh, runners or, you know, 12 students. And we didn't really touch on this much, but Central California, where I picked produce with migrants. Oh, yeah. My goal was to experience, you know, a month with them. And I could understand in some cases how terrible it is on, you know, just a couple hours. Yeah, that was very clear in the book. It was brutal work. Yeah. So I thought a month was a good time where I could commit and afford it. And I didn't want to trade my own life too much. Yeah. But in terms of the tourism, yeah, I can understand how people would feel that this looks like um, poverty tourism. (laughs) Mm. I've heard that term before. I didn't go around looking. That's the difference. I didn't go around looking and observing. I was actually like involved. Yeah. I think there's intent. And I think your intent is very clear in the book and perception. The question was just more about perception not intent, because I think the intent of the book is very noble um, and wanting to go and help these places. And a month is a considerable amount of time, especially when you're volunteering. But I do believe you chronicled some interactions in the book where, especially like, let's say on the reservation or in Appalachia, where you got quite a bit of pushback from folks who who thought, you know, who is this outsider? Sure. Why is he here? But I think what was heartening too is that you always found someone, at least one person in every community whether it was the mayor Mm -hmm. or the woman with the WIA on the reservation. Or a missionary later. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. The Appalachian chapter was, I was not anticipating that being the hardest one to read, but it was a very difficult read. It's rough. Yeah. But I think that was the heartening thing about that book was that there was always always someone. It reminds me that uh, Mr. Rogers quote, in the middle of a crisis, look for the people who are helping. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you always found one person at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, with Piecing Together America, unlike your previous books, this one is is most like, I think you could say, a traditional travel guide with detailed itineraries and must-see recommendations. The book is, I think, less about your personal journey and experiences and more like a straight-ahead collection of highlights from every major American city. So what inspired the new direction with your latest book? Well, you know, I was uh, sitting in a lobby of a conference center and heard visitors over talking about what they should do in Minneapolis. And I'd lived in Minneapolis for a year and a half at the time, and I thought it was incredible. And I only learned that because I wasn't a tourist, and I mm-hmm. lived there for long enough to be able to find the ins and outs and the, understand the culture of activities. And so when these people ended up not doing anything exciting besides going to a kind of a popular restaurant in a popular part of town, I felt like, oh man, they're really missing out on yeah. on the city making a good impression. So that's why I decided to do that. But that evolved into me wanting to actually make a tangible piece of every city in the country so I can have something in my office that says, yeah, I made that with a local. And so that's kind of what inspired me to do it is to create a travel guide through my eyes of all the must things to do and see in each major city. And I covered 70 and then make a tangible piece. That way you can have a meaningful connection with that place and learn a new craft, really our new skill. I got the book a week ago. And even though I've been to some of these cities, like Portland, for instance, I've been several times, like mm-hmm. a couple of these places I've been to, like Multnomah Falls. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. I've hiked there, but a lot of these places, I'm just looking at it right now, Pine State Biscuit I've been to. But a few of these places I've never been. And again, what I what I really like about it is the emphasis on the hands-on and the tactile, which a lot of other travel companions don't necessarily emphasize. During an appearance on NBC Boston, you said that America's core is, quote, our hands-on craftsmanship, our innovation. We have very creative people in this country. We can unite behind our innovation and our freedom to create, end quote. And I imagine if you ask citizens of other countries, if their people are creative and entrepreneurial, they'll say yes. So based on your travels, especially for this most recent book, Piecing Together America, what is it about America specifically in all of your travels that you feel makes it exceptionally innovative? You just look on the all the pioneers who've come across these lands and started things from scratch, whether it's the mm. pioneers or the pilgrims, frontiersmen, whatever you want to call them, they've all were able to make a life from just land. And then we started creating things that have never been done before, like the Hoover Dam. What an amazing architectural wonder that is, or the Erie Canal. 
or erecting these beautiful bridges like Golden Gate. Mm -hmm. And then you're seeing these amazing things that have just were created in America. Like I say graffiti, beautiful graffiti, and you have New York City as the hub. Or you look at some of these sports phenomenons that we've created, like the foam cheese head or the terrible towel, <laughs> or how the baseball bat and the sport has evolved to become a, our culture, basketball, football, baseball, all a huge part of our pop culture. And you can make these things from your own living room and just come up with an idea from your garage and make a world wonder. You know, Steve Jobs has done it. And this gentleman who created the foam cheese head, it's an incredible story. He just took apart his cushion couch and spray painted it yellow and created like the Swiss cheese type uh, holes and went from, you know, door to door trying to sell them, you know, from Wisconsin all the way down to Texas. And he sold out by the time he went there. You know, it's just like the American dream could be created from your own living room mm. or your garage. So that's what I talk about. We have the freedom to create and the only restriction is ourselves. Yeah, I think that's so true. And there is something so deeply American about your story, I think, and 50 Jobs in 50 States, for instance. You're the son of an immigrant father. Mm -hmm. And on an episode with Monica Guzman, who's an author and... Yeah, I know Monica. Mm -hmm. In her episode, we talked a bit about the concept of immigrant pluck, which I think you kind of elaborated on in your answer. This idea that, mm -hmm. I mean, to leave everything you know behind, come from a completely different country to a place where you might not even speak the language and make something for yourself. I mean, that step alone, which so many Americans of all generations share, is such a risk, right? But there is something in the air here. Like when I've talked with friends who live in other countries, they all kind of say that there's like this almost relentless optimism that exists within America that sometimes can seem a little naive, but there's just this idea of like, hey, why don't we try this idea? Or why don't we give this a shot? Or why don't we build this or experiment with this? And it is something that's so uniquely American. And I would say to anyone who's considering reading Daniel's books, it's such a through line, I think, in every one of your works. I think the books together create a nice and very distinct picture of our country. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing them. And before we get to the final question, I want to pose something to you that might allow you an avenue to offer some advice to our listeners, because I imagine that everyone listening to this episode right now, unless they're <laughs> simply the luckiest anomaly alive, has been rejected after a job interview. And seeing as you're the most rejected person in the world, according to USA Today, what advice would you have for listeners who might be feeling down right now due to a lack of job prospects or who might be feeling dejected or perhaps even a little hopeless while struggling with unemployment, what would you say to them based on your life? Yeah, I mean, if you're getting rejection, that is giving you a direction. I like to say that wherever you are in life is where you're supposed to be. So just accept that. But that doesn't mean, oh, okay, if, if that's true, then that means I don't need to really do anything or put effort anywhere. Because if my fate is already a set for me, then I could just sit back and relax. But the thing is, your heart will tell you how much effort to put in something or towards something and which direction to take. So you have to kind of listen to your heart when you're going through all these different things. And so that's, that's what I would say ultimately life big picture is you are where you're supposed to be. And in terms of like a rejection, and how to deal with that, I would say thank you. Thank you for putting me on a new direction and an avenue that I wouldn't have embarked on otherwise. Mm. So that's how I look at rejection. That's a very healthy outlook. I imagine cultivated over, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> over your years of experience. Yeah, that's very good. And, you know, just one more thing on this topic, because I think it's deeply relevant. There's a, an anecdote you share in 50 Jobs in 50 States, and I would love for you to share with our audience can you talk a little bit about the out-of-work dentist you met while you were training as a Boilermaker apprentice in Missouri and how the two of you came to meet? Yeah, he saw me on the local news doing welding. I was talking about, yeah, I'm doing this to open up people's minds to different avenues of careers. And this dentist, he had been unemployed during the recession. He had a private practice, obviously wasn't going well. And he actually showed up at the lobby of where I was doing this apprenticeship. And he asked to find me and we spoke and he said, I saw you on the news and I appreciated what I heard. And I'd rather do something than feeling this sense of loss. And so he ended up applying as apprentice himself. 
that anecdote specifically stuck out to me because I think there's so much wisdom in it. This is a trap that I've fallen into myself. In poker, there's a term called pot committed, where you feel like you've put so much money into, let's say, a Texas Hold'em pot that you don't want to fold your hand even if you have bad cards. And I feel like that can happen to a lot of us if we've chosen a certain career path and it's just not simply working out or we've moved to a city and it's not working out, whatever the decision might be, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that what really is so important about that anecdote with the dentist is that at any point in your life, you can just decide to go another way. And then oftentimes, the skills that you've acquired in one career can oftentimes be lateral and you can use them in another career. And I just wanted to point out that bit from that book because I think that there is a lot of wisdom in it. To get to our final question, you studied economics and business in college. For me personally, as someone who went to both undergrad and grad school, I've been doing something over the last few years that I I really never pictured myself doing, which was I've begun to reconsider the value of a college education for large swaths of the American people, myself included. I I don't know if if I went back 20 years in time, I don't know if I would have necessarily recommended the path to my younger self that I went on, even though I'm glad for where I am now. And reading your books, it's just kind of heightened that feeling that the way that we approach work, the way that we approach careers, and the path that we put ourselves on because society tells us we have to do it that way, I'm not entirely sure that's the right way to go for everybody, right? Of course, there's going to be careers in which college education is necessary or even vital. What is your perspective for young people who maybe haven't gone into college yet? They're thinking about what they want to do with the rest of their lives. Where do you think we go next as a society? And what do you think are some of the best paths forward for Americans who are thinking about careers or thinking about career changes? Yeah, well, there's a lot of non-technical things that I gained from going to college. And I learned about a sense of community, pride. I always got out of my elements quite a bit. You know, living away from home was a huge thing. That was very helpful for my personal development. For people who are going to college to earn a credential, I would say that's not the best approach. If you're going to school to learn something technical that you can't learn elsewhere, then I would definitely say the college or technical college is the best path for you. But yeah, if you're just going to earn a degree and getting a diploma to say, hey, look at me, I got this, then that's not the best path that I would, you know, get behind. But there are a lot of, you know, if you're going to a place like Harvard or Stanford, you're not going for the education, you're going for the network. That is true. Right? So yeah, it just depends on what your motive is to go to college. But if you're just doing it for a diploma and earning the certification, I would say that's not the best use of your time. And I think our society is starting to understand that, that four-year traditional degree is not as valuable as actually someone who has experience and can storytell and put something really important on their resume. One of the biggest takeaways from your books and specifically your experience with 50 jobs in 50 states is what a absolute diverse collection of opportunities there are around the United States and jobs that I was reading about you doing that sound obvious now that I've read about them. But before I had opened the book, they wouldn't have even been jobs that had ever crossed my mind because of, again, the little bubble that I'm in here in California with a very specific life path highly recommend this book for the storytelling aspect, but also just to get a better understanding, not only of the diverse communities that exist within America and how big and beautiful and different and weird and strange and wonderful our country is, but also just how many paths are open to you, no matter what age you are. And I think your story, Daniel, is an excellent example of how life is never over. Yeah. And the adventures that we make for ourselves are ones that we truly make for ourselves. So... Daniel, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day-to-day to speak with us. And thank you for sharing your story. I look forward to your next book. Absolutely. Thank you very much.